As we read this morning's sermon text, then you can turn in your Bibles to the book of First Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 986. After many months studying Genesis and Exodus in the morning, shortly working through Haggai in the past a few weeks, we now, for the next few months, which I think will take us about to Thanksgiving, give our attention to First and Second Thessalonians. It's a book that I trust you'll come to love if you know little about it. If you know something about it, you know that's a powerful couple of letters that mean to poke and, and prod, to confront, convict, and comfort. It's a power that's even in our text this morning, which is all 10 verses of chapter 1. So let me read those verses for us and, and pray for our time, and then we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through his word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit." So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us by your word and spirit, and we pray that this morning we might receive this truth with meekness and love and repentance, that our response to the gospel would be one of joy in your Holy Spirit, Send, therefore, your spirit amongst us that we might hear this truth, that we might keep this truth, that I might preach this truth as you say I must. Let us listen with eyes and ears looking towards eternity. May the same be true even of my mouth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's set the context here for the establishing of a church in Thessalonica all the way back in the first century. Just a couple of decades after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, the Apostle Paul and Silas were in a city known as Philippi, ministering there as they normally did. And one day, the Apostle Paul exercised the demon from a young slave girl. And that slave girl's master had been profiting off of her, and he was highly upset with now his profit gone. And so Paul and Silas were dragged before the local magistrates. And they were interrogated. Subsequently, they were beaten and bloodied with stiff rods, and they were thrown into a Philippian jail. And that night, Paul and Silas were singing hymns, praying prayers, 
when revival comes to the jail, the jailer is automatically suddenly converted. His family is baptized. Paul and Silas are summoned before those same magistrates in Philippi the next morning. And they find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and that the previous treatment they gave to Paul and Silas on the day before was unjust. And so they try to hurry Paul and Silas out of the city of Philippi saying, don't come back here, just get gone. Off Paul and Silas go. They start to walk west. About 90 minutes later, they land in what was at the time the capital of Macedonia, a massive seaport, an influential place for trade and merchant fare because it was on this crossroads in the Roman Empire, this city of Thessalonica. Beautiful even in its time today. If you were to look out over the southwest of the bay, you would have seen at the time what the locals understood to be the mount that was called Mount Olympus. It was there that the gods and goddesses of the culture were said to reside. And Paul, as he was normally accustomed to doing, he walked into Thessalonica. He found a local synagogue and he started to preach. He opened up the Bible. He opened up God's Word and began to read and explain and reason and, and try to prove that Jesus Christ is none other than the Messiah sent forth from heaven by God. And he did this for a few Sabbaths in a row and the book of Acts chapter 17 tells us that, that a few Jews were converted, but mostly it was a conversion of Gentiles, pagan followers, and the text tells us not a few learned women in the city. And soon the Jews, very much jealous by Paul's success in preaching, they started this mob, incited a riot, and again Paul and his followers are summoned before the local city officials, and the Jewish leaders say, these men who've turned the world upside down. Here they are saying that there's a, another king, and his name is Jesus. And so very rapidly, these men are once again scurried out of a city, banned from ever returning. But the Apostle Paul, after just a few weeks, having planted this church, of course in time, he, he wants to know what's going on with this young Thessalonian congregation. I'm not supposed to go back. How are we going to get a report back on the Thessalonica church? So he decides to send his young protege, Timothy, back through the lines of persecution. Timothy, get a report on the Thessalonians. Bring it back to me that I might be encouraged. And so Timothy does exactly that. He comes back and gives Paul a report. And Paul says later on in this letter that he then starts to write the words that are before us today. And I know a man that encourages young Christians that maybe have been recently converted, wanting to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ, that they should begin their Christian maturity by reading two books of the Bible. First of all, read the Gospel of John, because of course you need to know who Jesus is. Then read First Thessalonians, because you need to know what the Christian life in the church is supposed to look like. So students, what you're going to find if you pay attention over the coming weeks and months, I trust, is the Bible telling us what happens not only when the gospel creates a church, not only when the gospel spreads forth from a church, but how that gospel creates a particular life in the church. Because this is a text that's going to call us to not only what faithful leadership looks like, the reasons for which we need to always be looking for the Lord's return. It even points to just the simple matters of Christian ethics and the pursuit of holiness. And so our theme this morning in the 10 verses before us is actually a question. What happens when God grows a church? 
That's the question we're asking and trying to answer from our text today. What happens when God grows a church? Because true Christians, of course, want to know how God grows a church. Certainly, we all should want to know how God grows a church. As surely as a gardener needs to know the necessary conditions for seeing a seed flower into a plant that can weather any storm. So do local congregations need to know how the gospel is planted in their life and how the Spirit grows it into a congregation that can weather any storm. So if you just glance down at the ten verses before us, they're actually divided nicely in half. Verses 1 through 5 is the first section, verses 6 through 10. The second section, so we'll walk through those sections with headings of remember God's work, verses 1 through 5, and then receive God's word, Verses 6 through 10. Remembering begins, notice verse 1, the greeting Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Silvanus is just another way to say the name Silas. It's this triumvirate of apostolic missionaries writing once again to their close friends in the faith. But as you work through the book, what you see quite quickly, and we'll see, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, is the narrative terms first person. So it's very much the Apostle Paul's concern, his unique interest in the Thessalonians. And right from the get-go, what he's saying in these first few phrases is what the Thessalonians need is the comfort of knowing that they're not the church in Thessalonica. You see, that's different what he says. He could have said that in some other letters. He says things like that. He says, you're the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church facing oppression, uh, for a church facing affliction, we'll soon see, trial and, and tribulation. What they need to know is that ultimately, spiritually, they are in God the Father. And in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you can trust that any time a local congregation like our own goes through seasons of difficulty, at times of hardship, what we first need to remember is that we are in God the Father, that we are in the Lord Jesus, His Son, because it's only there that you have strength, that you have stability to weather the spiritual storms that Satan throws our way. And he notices, or notice he begins in verse 2, praying as he always does for local churches, saying in verse 3, remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably the earliest mention of this trinity of spiritual grace, faith, hope, and love. John Calvin said this is the very definition of salvation, faith. Hope in love. That there's no such thing as Christianity without faith, hope, and love. There's no such thing, therefore, as a, a Christian void of faith, hope, and love. But you see, verse 3 particularly is more on how those graces are revealed. How they move. How they walk. This is why, parents, you want to always train your children to recognize that, that grace has tangible realities. Hands and feet. Because what does Paul say? Notice again, verse 3, but that faith works, love, labors, hope, perseveres. That's why, of course, James can say, using similar language in chapter 2, show me your works, and I'll show you your faith. Show me your perseverance, 
I'll show you your hope. Show me your labor. I'll show you your love. And he's encouraged, of course, by these graces, largely because of what God has done in their life. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You could be in here today and wonder, how is it that I can know that God has called me? Yes, it's all of sovereign grace, salvation, but, but how can I know that God has chosen me? Well, you want to see, first of all, of course, in verse 4, Paul says, we know that he's chosen you. So therefore, it's possible that you would know that God has called you. And the reasons, of course, precede the verse and follow the verse. You could say that the spiritual graces of verse 3, they, of course, do prove one's election. That the calling is sure in Jesus Christ by virtue of faith that works, love that labors, hope that perseveres. But Paul's argument actually continues. Notice into verse 5, he says, How do we know that God has chosen you? Answer verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Two of the leading English evangelicals, English-speaking, I should say, evangelicals of the 20th century were men named J.I. Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones. J.I. Packer was this English theologian. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh preacher. And J.I. Packer often reflected on his time as a student in 1948 to 1949, when he would, every Lord's Day morning, go and listen to Dr. Lloyd-Jones preach. And he said he had never heard preaching like that before. He says, quote, it came with the force of an electric shock. No one had given me a sense of God before I heard the doctor preach. That's the kind of preaching that Paul says comes to a church that God has chosen. That preaching in the fullness of the Spirit always accompanies God's sovereign saving grace because you'll see how he qualifies the preaching that belonged there in Thessalonica with three things in verse 5, saying that the word came to you, the gospel came to you, not only in word, but it says also in power. So that's number one. Preaching, true preaching, must come with power. That could be, it's certainly possible, that he's referring to something like miraculous power. These signs and wonders that attend and confirm the gospel message. I do think in all likelihood, based on the entirety of this book, he's referring to that sovereign spiritual power that is the turning of a, of a cold heart into a heart that flames in love for Christ. This, this stony heart, just breaking through it that it might melt before Christ's love, such as a sovereign work of the Spirit, which is why he says it comes to you not only in word, but in power. Secondly, the verse says, in the Holy Spirit. Do you know that there's no true preaching without the Spirit working through the preaching. That's just a bunch of words. But there is no power. Too many Christians, don't you think? Churches, even today, content with words. But no power in the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians knew that there was power in Paul's preaching. The Spirit was in Paul's preaching. You see, thirdly, of course, they also knew that it came with full conviction. There was no doubt in Paul's preaching. There was no uncertain sound in Paul's preaching. When he heralded the truth, he was utterly confident that, of course, what? Jesus is the Christ, the one to whom all creation must bow. 
before whom all people must worship and call on his name. Uh, Preaching must come with power. Preaching must come with the Spirit. Preaching must come with confidence and certainty. Because, of course, this is the kind of preaching that God sends when he's chosen a people, called them in his love. Remember God's work. Now you'll see verse 6 and following call us to receive God's word. One of my favorite preachers of years gone by went on this extended missionary trip. And while he was gone, the Lord poured forth the power of revival in his church through another preacher. And he heard while he was away that this revival had broken out in his church. And so, expectedly, he was really zealous to get back to his home church. And he came back on a Thursday, which in the life of that church meant the Thursday night prayer meeting was soon to happen. It was a prayer meeting that always was full of at least 1,100 people. He walked into the meeting room that night and and found it full of even more than 1,100 people. There were people in the aisles standing along the walls. They were using the pulpit chairs as stairs. Instead of giving them some sort of update about the missionary trip, as so often happens, not even leading them in prayer as he was normally wont to do. He actually opened his Bible. He began to preach a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about the crucified and, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And he later on wrote that night to his loved ones. He says, I have never preached to such a crowd before, weeding, weeping and waiting on the words of eternal life. It's something similar to what Paul experienced in Thessalonica. Notice verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Just as Paul's preaching was full, the congregation's hearing was full. Just as the Spirit was necessary for the words coming out of his mouth, so was the Spirit needed for the words hitting the ears of those listening there in Thessalonica. And he says, you received it in affliction. Which probably in context, all that means is there was opposition that was being thrown the way of the Thessalonian church through local magistrates, even the designs and schemes of Satan. That if they were to listen to the gospel and respond to the gospel, there was going to be this genuine cost to their life. And there was affliction then, therefore, that belonged to the preaching. But in the midst of that affliction, you see, they received it with joy in the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you're in here today and you find yourself in a season of affliction, maybe a period of suffering, and you hear the word preached, does it lift your head? Does it raise your gaze? Yes, Lord, in spite of all my griefs, sorrows, trials and troubles, tribulations and temptations, I know that you are enough, that Christ is good, that the Spirit is full of joy towards us. And this response to the word, you'll notice in verse 7, meant they were a model church. They imitated the apostles and how they received the word. And now those who imitated the apostles becomes imitated themselves. Look at verse 7 and 8. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. 
The word there actually in the original for sounded forth, it's, it's a very unique word in the New Testament. It kind of is like raising a trumpet, blasting a trumpet. It comes from the word for, for echo. So kids, I wonder if you've ever been in a cave before and you've noticed that the, the walls, they kind of repeat sounds that you might send their way. So you might cry out, hello, and it repeats. Or perhaps you... And it repeats and repeats and repeats. And what Paul is saying is that the Thessalonians' response to the gospel was clapping out throughout all of Macedonia in Achaia. So seemingly at that time, you could have been a traveler on the streets of somewhere in Macedonia, somewhere in Achaia, and you might have overheard a conversation. Did you hear what's been happening in Thessalonica? This crazy little man started preaching. And all these people started listening. These former citizens that were good citizens, now they're following some supposed king from this place called Galilee. Can you believe what's happening in Thessalonica? Too many churches today, don't you know it to be true, don't have any gospel clapping, gospel echoing, reverberating power in their midst. If someone was to look at your life, would they hear that clap of a heart eager to respond to God's word? Is your home one in which there's such a desire for the joy of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word that everybody just seems to know? Or perhaps even most poignantly, of course, to this passage, what about this church? Is there an echoing reality of how we have heard the gospel preached to us and responded to its truth? We've, of course, said many times already in the course of the sermon, using this word gospel, not defining it, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Uh, But you'll notice the reason why is verse 9 and 10 give us a very succinct summary of the gospel. You know, students, if you you wanted to memorize these two verses, you'd always have at the tip of your tongue a, a very clear statement of what the good news in Jesus Christ is. Look at verse 9 begins, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the gospel is, according to this passage, the gospel of repentance, isn't it? And kids, it's a a very simple way that's illustrating what repentance really is. You turned from idols, Thessalonians, and you turned to God. Repentance is just turning. It's forsaking something to follow something. Forsaking someone to follow the one. And you see, of course, in the span of that simple verse, it's revealing to us the the radical nature of repentance. That's all-consuming, it's complete and total. It's it's completely against the former way of life. You once served dead things. Now you serve the living one. You once served the many, and now you serve the one. You once served that which is false, and now you serve that which is true. You once served that which is created. Now you serve that God who has created all things. Some of you today haven't turned from idols. You may not have little wooden things on your mantle at home, but you have idols in your heart. Something or someone that has taken the place that only God deserves of true allegiance and ultimate adoration. And you must likewise turn from that which is dead to serve he who is alive. 
Which even leads us, of course, not just from repentance to a return and a resurrection. Verse 10, you've turned to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. In Paul's mind, uh, the return of Jesus Christ is inextricably linked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes altogether sense when you just meditate on it for a moment. Because it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was the first fruit of the new creation. It's the return of Jesus Christ that brings the fullness and finality of the new creation. That you don't have a true gospel being preached. You don't have a true gospel being loved unless you're waiting for the return of the resurrected king. It'd be much like a spouse, wouldn't it? Content to go months and months. Not eagerly awaiting the return of the bride, or the groom. I wonder if you might be in here today and perhaps it's been months that you've actually yearned for Christ to return. Perhaps it's actually been years. Paul would say, true Christians long for the return of the resurrected King. It's about repentance. It's about a return. It's about a resurrection. This good news of Jesus Christ, of course, is about wrath. Look at the end. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So the return of Jesus Christ is not going to be good news for everybody. His wrath to come. That for those in Jesus Christ, his return is going to be one of a summons to everlasting rest. But for others that don't repent, it's going to be a summons and a declaration unto everlasting wrath, not rest. And understand that even if you're in here today and you're a Christian, the tendency that Satan often wars against you with to minimize the fullness, the terrifying reality that belongs to God's wrath. Because, of course, a person that understands his wrath is minimal will be a person that looks on the saving work of Jesus Christ as though it's this splash of grace in a small bucket called salvation. But if your understanding of God's wrath is biblical, that splash of grace becomes an endless ocean of grace and love of salvation that takes every one of your sins and drowns it in the deep, places it there from which they will never, ever return again. You don't have a God of wrath, if you don't have a God who is love. So this is the gospel, according to Paul, that was preached. This is a gospel that was declared to the church there in Thessalonica. It's a gospel that came not only in word, but in power. Don't ever treat the gospel like a catechism. I can just recite it. But it's got no power in your life. Power to drown your sins. Power to bring you into God's family. Power to unite you to God's Son from whom all the blessings and benefits flow. The question, though, that we started with and consider now is what happens when God grows a church? Some of you grew up in an era of American evangelicalism that scholars now call the church growth movement and a recent book that was analyzing that movement, its pitfalls, shortcomings, and successes along the way, but charting a better way forward for for God's people, said that there were four overarching realities that marked the church growth movement, the first of which was uh, programs, 
Second of which was a place, like the attractiveness of your church building. Third of which was personality, largely of the preacher. Uh, get someone that's full of personality, that's altogether engaging and overwhelming in his humor. And then uh, the people itself. Make sure you have smiling people when others arrive on Sunday. And that's true, and they even explain in their book saying, this has been the tried and true formula for church growth in previous decades. If you maximize the attractiveness of your place, the charisma of your personality, the excellence of your programs, and the welcome of your people, your church will grow. It is just that simple. And yet, if you know the New Testament well, you say it's really not that biblical. God is always doing something else when he truly grows a church. So what does he do when he grows a church? Well, let me point you to three simple words as we begin to close. Gratitude, grace, and gospel. So first, the church abounds in gratitude. You see verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Always thanking the Lord for his work there at Thessalonica, Paul says. Constantly remembering what he has done in you. Of course, this is Paul saying that. It's not the... Thessalonians saying that, but they're imitators of him. Later on in the book, chapter 5, he's going to say, you must continue to always give thanks for everything in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what you constantly pray for. Maybe the better question is, do you constantly pray for anything? And do your constant prayers have constant thanksgiving? Uh, You could do a simple study, particularly of the requisite texts in God's Word, to notice that gratitude and thanksgiving is something like an umbrella grace that belongs to true churches and Christians. Yet how often Christians and churches are known best for grumbling and not gratitude. Isn't it so often that you'll find this in a church when someone comes along and says, hey, tell me about your church. And you always introduce this little conjunction of but. I love the church. But, I'm so excited to go on Sundays, but, it's like that chef who who makes a meal to bring it before the judges, and the judges say, you know, it needs salt, and the chef says, I put salt in it, and the judges say, well, you may have, but there's no salt in here, Lord, we're grateful, you may think you are, but I don't see any gratitude in your midst, When God grows a church, it first of all abounds in gratitude. Number two, it lives in the knowledge of his grace. Look again at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Kids, you need to know that this is the truth of God's electing love. He chooses you, you don't choose him. He calls you, you don't call him. He has chosen you not based on anything you are doing. Anything you will do, anything you have done, of course, the reality of God's love is he chooses you just because he loves you in spite of everything you've done, are doing, and will do. And again, for Paul, the natural overflow of a church that understands this grace, faith works, love labors, hope perseveres, they respond to the powerful preaching of God's word with joy in the midst of their affliction. When God grows a church, it abounds in gratitude. When God grows a church, it lives in the knowledge of his grace. Thirdly, finally, when God grows a church, it prizes gospel preaching. It prizes gospel preaching. 
Because you see, of course, it's through the preaching of the gospel that God began this church, continued this church, grew this church, sustained this church. You know, kids, students, eventually you're going to move away from your parents' house, should the Lord tarry. And I trust you're going to look for a good gospel preaching, a healthy church where you can grow in Jesus Christ. And, and what, what you do when you walk into that church is you, you'll immediately begin to reflect and analyze and examine what you see and what you hear. And that's good. Uh, you'll think, oh, what, what about the preaching? And that's good too. But don't forget what you also must examine by virtue of this text is how are they listening to the preached word? Because I can tell you, in all my experience in pastoral ministry, the surest sign of a church that's growing in health is one that's hungry for God's Word. If it's not there, it's not that you run away because it's not a true church. It's just got a long way to go. And do hear me say that we have a long way to go, don't we? We don't want to say, as, as true Presbyterians perhaps might, well, we have it in our confessions and catechisms, that the Lord especially uses the preaching of the word as a unique particular means to convince and convert sinners, to build them up in holiness and comfort. Yes, we have a healthy approach to the preaching of the word. Now we might, but that doesn't mean it's perfect, does it? Perhaps some of you in here doubt the power of God's word. That tiny little children can find power in God's word. The gospel preaching could even go to the disabled, to the disordered, and change them. The uneducated and the uninformed. Words that they've never heard before. Yet the Spirit, working in His sovereignty, does something amazing. Brings repentance and the good news announcement of a resurrected King who's soon going to return that will deliver you from the wrath to come. What happens when God grows a church? It will abound in gratitude. It will live in His grace. It will prize gospel preaching, of course, because it's through gospel preaching that we meet Jesus Christ. And it's in Him that all growth is only found. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that You would grow us in the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ as we want to be like the Thessalonians. A church that's imperfect but nevertheless has responded rightly to the declaration of the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of the ways in which we have continued to grumble. The ways in which we have thought lightly and perhaps even cheapened your grace. Minimize the preaching of your word. Not known, therefore, the joy of the Holy Spirit. So do, we pray, convict us of our sin. Comfort us in your Son's mercy that we might grow in him. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.